Jeffrey Grossenbach at RubyConf 2008 in Orlando, Florida, uh, talking to Monty Williams, one of the founders of Gemstone. And one of the, I thought one of the most exciting things to come out of RailsConf a couple of months ago was the story of Maglev, where uh, Gemstone's building a Ruby interpreter on top of their existing small talk technology. You were telling me uh, last night about how that all started, and you actually didn't get the approval to work on the project until later than you'd hoped. How did the whole thing start? Okay, so the way it started is that a couple of years ago, uh, we uh, we developed... Um, let me see, let me start. So a couple of years ago, I was talking with Avi Bryant, who uh, gave a talk at RailsConf the year before on uh, uh, a heresy that uh, Ruby would be better running on top of a small talk virtual machine. He came in and gave a talk about, I'm from 25 years in the future, and you guys in Ruby are doing this, but a lot of that was already invented with Smalltalk. So uh, I had worked with Avi previously on Gemstone's implementation of Seaside, which is a web framework developed in Smalltalk. And so I got together with Avi, and we hatched this plan to do, uh, to do what he thought which was to run Ruby on top of our Smalltalk virtual machine. So we uh, we started talking about that in you know after RailsConf 2007, basically in October of 2007. And I thought this was a great idea. Let's try and get something done by RailsConf for you know in in six months and see what we can do. Well. It didn't quite happen that way, and it wasn't until Valentine's Day 2008 that we actually started on the project, which gave us 100 days to get what we wanted implemented in Maglev. And we decided that we would, uh, the test would be, could we get WebRick running on Maglev in 100 days? Well, we were also kind of going, well, gee, okay, we have to sign up for RailsConf and we have to make this commitment. And what if we can't get this done in 100 days? We'll look pretty stupid. So to work around that, we said, let's first off get the YARF benchmarks that were uh, shown on uh, Antonio Cangiano's website, a fairly popular uh, place to hit when you're looking at Ruby benchmarks. And we said, well, you know, if we can get let's say 80% of these 40 or so benchmarks running, then at least if we get to RailsConf, we'll have something we can show if we have nothing else. So Avi's a pretty sharp uh, Ruby programmer and Smalltalk programmer, and it took him maybe a couple of weeks to get enough of the benchmarks running that we thought we could have something to show if nothing else occurred. And uh, then we started on WebRick which was a fairly tough task, uh, but you don't have to have as much of Ruby implemented to run WebRick as one would think. And with a lot of hard work and nights and weekends between Avi working on part of it and the team from Gemstone working on the other part, we got WebRick running with relatively minor changes uh, probably about two weeks before RailsConf. Then uh, we had two weeks left over, and we took Tim Bray's, has an XML parser written in Ruby called RA. Uh, that's, uh, he, he never followed on because it's, it was so much slower than Rexamel and, and, or slower than HPercot that nobody would ever want to use it. And we thought, well, let's see if we can get that running and get some performance measure to see because that's more like a real app than WebRick is. 
uh, because Webrick spends most of its time sitting listening, to, you know, waiting on a socket. And so we ported Timbre's uh, RA application, uh, which turned out to be, you know, roughly five times faster than it was in MRI. And then there we were at RubyConf, you know, a hundred days in from from the the very first start until we got to, uh, uh, I mean, not RubyConf. We were at the RailsConf uh, end of May, and that was the story of the first hundred days. And it's gone on from there. The only graphic they showed at the lecture yesterday was that originally, after those hundred days, they were passing. I think there are a total of fifteen. 15- Thousand specs? No, no fifteen hundred. Let me tell you. I, I actually have that. Uh, I can. I, w- I will give you real numbers. So let me just open up a file here real quickly. So the story was that after uh, RailsConf, it turned out we had a lot of infrastructure work to do uh, in terms of uh, getting. Uh, AST nodes that weren't implemented, implemented, getting, you know, parser work, compiler work, uh, a bunch of stuff that was actually not much involved with coding Ruby, but was uh, involved in getting stuff to run the way, you know, the way we wanted. So we didn't actually start working on trying to run Ruby specs, which is, you know, the, the project that uh, Brian Ford uh, from the Rubinius team is kind of put together of you know large number of specs to to if you pass them all you run Ruby and we knew that uh, MRI for example passed you know a huge number of those tests you know fairly close to sixteen thousand tests in the core and language Ruby spec. There's also a, a third standard library part of Ruby spec, and we decided that the best way to get us running and say that we're really running Ruby is to pass those specs. So we started in September, uh, and we ran about 1,800. We passed about 1,800 uh, of those specs out of the, you know, nearly 16,000. Uh, and then we uh, turned out to be a little bit of vacation time. We didn't do any new releases until the end of September. Uh, but by the end of September, we were running about uh, 4,100. And every week we run a few hundred more. So as of the 3rd of November, we're running about 7,500 tests. And when I say running, I mean actually ones that pass. We run uh, about 12,500, and about 3,400 of those don't, uh, don't have the proper result, which could be an error. It could be that we just don't produce the right string and stuff, but it's, you know, we're close. And then about 1,700 we actually fail on. And our goal is to, as rapidly as possible, uh, get to running, you know, roughly the 15,000, 16,000 of those specs as we can. And when we get a higher number done in the core and language, we'll start running the standard library tests, uh, which brings in mainly more Ruby code, you know, code that we will take, uh, you know, that's already existing Ruby code in the standard library that we should run unchanged. So we think when we get through with core and language, we should run most of the standard library tests, and that brings the total up to about 33,000. We'll see. Impressive. It's great to see a project like that, like Ruby Spec, to where 
it wasn't really endorsed by Matt's, but he said, hey, I don't want to do it, but if you if you want to do it, go for it. Now we have that. Now the different implementations can use that, and it's a real nice benchmark to ga- gauge your pros- progress and then actually be able to see if you've implemented what Ruby is. Yeah, and it, it is. I mean, you look at, you know, uh, MRI, uh, Rubenius, and JRuby, you know, we've seen all run these specs. I think the Iron Ruby guys too. I haven't looked at their results, but they're all running roughly the same. You know, the same percentage. You don't, you don't have to run a hundred percent. You need to run, you know, like ninety nine percent plus. There's some weird edge cases that I think nobody runs probably correctly. But uh, we think the Ruby spec project is just. It was a great boon to us because when you think of somebody coming completely outside from Ruby, the way we started implementing it is we sat down with the pickaxe book and we said, okay, hmm, chapter X, what, let's do this, you know, so, uh, now the thing was we had an existing VM, right, so we have a VM that, that runs a lot of stuff, and for example, what Avi was able to do to get WebRick running where you needed time was just map the Ruby class to the Smalltalk class, and, you know, you get something that, that basically runs and then you account for the difference, and there are some subtle differences, but you know, you can think of it as basically we had the engine, but we're building this part of the car around it, and the car had to meet the specs. But we've we've you know we've got a good engine, but we still needed to add a you know some transmission and wheels and a uh, you know that's probably a poor analogy, but at any rate, we have a we have the virtual machine, we have the persistence, and we have the distributed object share already there, and we have to make it run Ruby. Now, there's a prior story on that, that kind of led up to this is when we started running Seaside, which is the Smalltalk web framework. What we did is take our dialect of Smalltalk and Seaside, which was originally written in Squeak, which has different some different syntactical pieces than we have, and we actually added the capability to run Squeak Smalltalk to our virtual machine, which already ran Gemstone Smalltalk. So we already had experience taking our virtual machine and making it run a slightly different language. And Avi's point was that the object models in Ruby and Smalltalk are so similar that the basic engine part should work just fine. All you have to do is figure out how to compile it into the byte codes that you already run. And I think we wound up adding, you know, maybe a couple of dozen primitives to account for some of the differences because, you know, a zero-based versus one-based you don't want to be, uh, you know, dealing for that different offset at a high level. So you have, you know, some some primitives that uh, we had to change. But otherwise, uh, uh, it seems to be a pretty good thing to to bolt this on to an existing VM that's already used in production in a lot of, you know, uh, financial trading systems, which are probably a bad word these days. You know, shipping, semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, so we got a good solid persistence mechanism, distributed cache, and virtual machine, and the trick is to make it run Ruby. And Ruby's a wonderful language for uh, for all the developers who use Ruby, and boy, there are a lot of edge cases. So for implementers of Ruby, I can see what Charles Nutter and John Lamb and all the other guys have gone through to get this to run. It's a extremely... Uh, complex language because Ruby takes care of the hard parts for you to make it easy for the developer and I think that's the reason that you know so many people like Ruby it's a it's 
wonderful for the developer. You get concise code. Yeah, it's just hard for the implementers because we have to take care of all the things to make your life easy. Two other brief questions. You mentioned uh, the kinds of projects that Gemstone is being used on right now. A lot of people think of Smalltalk as this old thing from the 80s that, you know, is is past its time. But no, it's at the core of financial institutions, stock markets, and high-technology companies. You wanted to, you had the vision to take that technology and make it available then to Ruby developers, open source developers, Mm -hmm. building websites, things on a lot smaller scale than many of your current customers. Why did you feel like that was important? Well, I I mean, we've been, Gemstone has pretty solidly been an enterprise company for the last, I've been with, as you mentioned, one of the founders had been with Gemstone since 82, and we've always been into the enterprise business. And the thing that motivated me to take this approach was, I think that uh, applications that run on your computer that have to be installed in an enterprise, installed on thousands of computers, are just a huge waste of IT resources, managing those. If you can run an app over the web, then I can deploy it in my data center. Everybody in my corporation can have access to it. And, you know, you just look at it and you go in the future. As we get better and better at developing apps through the web, everything's going to run that way. I just, I I think it's just inevitable. And it's hard, you know, it's it's getting much better. Ajax, uh, you know, working through the web is better. And as you've seen, you know, Google apps and other apps that that run and you, you, you can do drag and drop and whatever. It's getting there. It's still tough. But eventually... Uh, you know, browser-based development, you know, in, in uh, JavaScript and whatever will get so good that why would you why would you run a spreadsheet or a word processor, you know, that you had to go buy from some big company up north and install on your machine and pay three hundred bucks for it when you can just run it as a Google app and you you don't have to maintain that infrastructure. I get a new computer and all my Google spreadsheets are still there. You know, it gets stolen. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to install the software. I don't have to make it work. So. Uh, I think it's the way things are going to go. And we think it's even inside the corporations. I deal with, for example, here's a trading company that we deal with that has 8,000 users. And you go, uh, even in the very early days at Florida Power and Light and their trouble call system had, uh, you know, thousands of computers they had to install this on. So every time they upgraded their app, uh, they had a huge problem to push the app out and make sure it got installed on all the workstations that it was being used for and I, I saw that uh, that pain and in, in how many staff they had to do that you know uh, back in the late 80s early 90s and so I think uh, you know that's just why would you do that let's make it easier on them final question even after you finish this fast wonderful Ruby inter- uh, Ruby Virtual, virtual machine, not yeah. fu- not quite an interpreter, a little different. But. It's actually compiled in native code, so yeah, it has a just-in-time compiler, and you know, and in fact, we found one of the things Alan mentioned in his talk is the difference. But we're building it on the Gemstone Virtual Machine version three, and the main difference is a full native code compile mode, and that gives us about a two x to three x speed up over the interpreted version of Gemstone sixty four bit, which was uh, you know version two. So. Yeah, all our customers are going to get, when we get Maglev finished, all the customers who run all our other products are going to get a 2 to 3x speed up, too, because of having full native code. 
and methods are compiled basically the first time you execute a method, it gets compiled in native code. So the first thing, there's a little bit of hit, but if you're going to run a method even 20 times, compile it to native code, you know, 19 of those times run faster. So even when you do complete this, yeah. you still have the problem of how do we come up with a great way of working with a persistent object data store in Ruby a lot of people, you know, some Rubyists, definitely Rails developers, may think of Active Record as the be-all, end-all, yeah. but that's just kind of a kludge to work with a relational database. Is the current way that your Smalltalk applications query your persistent data store, do you think that's going to give you any hints as to what a good way would be to do it in Ruby, or is this going to take just brand new thinking about how to work with objects and, and well, store those and query them? I don't think that Gemstone wants to be the... the I think people who, you know, people who want to use Ruby, we want to develop this in a way that's natural to using Ruby. And what we would like is that, you know, when you when you go use Rails, you, you have to learn Ruby and then you have to learn SQL. Now maybe everybody already knows SQL, but you've, you, you think, God, why shouldn't I just go, you know, this regular dotted expression on why, should, why do I need to write a query in SQL? So there's two things. One is, why do I need to force my data into a tabular format instead of having a nice you know, graph of objects the way I want. So I would like to, 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 to build uh, the model the way I want the object model to be, have the schema of my database be the model itself, not to be a bunch of rows and tables that I convert, you know, I convert my object into. Now, Esther Dyson has uh, a wonderful quote where she says, you know, it's like if you drive your car home at night and when you put it in the garage, you had to disassemble your car and put, you know, all the pistons in one bin and the wheels in another. And then in the morning when you get ready to drive it, you've got to take it out and reassemble it all together. And she says, people have been doing this for years and eventually they're going to figure out that's just not the best way to store your car. <laughs> now, there's, 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 you know, relational databases are here to stay. You have to deal with a lot of legacy uh, information. You have to retrieve data from it, send data to it, so you cannot avoid it. And we, in that sense, will have to do active record to deal with uh, that type of data. But the people we're talking to kind of on the leading edge say, I would really like to, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of active record. There have been proposals like active model. Uh, and we're just really at the start of thinking, how would Rubyus best like to do this? And so when we get the you know, this kind of early alpha out to, uh, you know, a few selected people to make sure we don't get overwhelmed and, you know, we get the, the, the kinks worked out, we're going to pretty soon start getting feedback from people that says, well, this is the way we think it should work, and then we're going to implement from there. But we don't, we don't want to force people to use our idea of the way object persistence would work based on our small talk model if that's not the way Rubyists want to do it. So... How that turns out, uh, you know, when I come back to RubyConf next year, maybe that'll all be mapped perfectly and we'll all understand it. But we, uh, the experience we had uh, with uh, a, a, one of the large banks who uh, took, who had an, an object-oriented system built in Smalltalk talking to Oracle, and they finally switched to using the, you know, the persistent store we had that was object-oriented. So they, they aren't having to do joins. They don't have to do all this OR mapping. They got about a 15x speed up in their application just by pulling the data out of Oracle. And so there is always an expense in doing this 
uh, you know, uh, disassembly, putting it into parts and, you know, getting it back out is, is expensive. And, uh, you know, whether, uh, you know, whether it becomes the really preferred method or whether people just say, you know, I know relational stuff, I want to stick with it, got to do that may happen, but there will be at least some percentage of the Ruby market that goes, I can get my application done better, I can use the model that I have in Ruby as the schema for my persistence, and that's going to enable me to get my job done faster and more and more reliably because I don't have to think in two different ways. So that's what we think will, you know, and hope will happen as a result of Maglev. Well, very ambitious and exciting project, but uh, great to hear about it. Thanks for the conversation. Oh, you're, you're more than welcome. Well, let's do it again next year when we've got, you know, stuff that we can really, uh, we can show and we can talk more about uh, how persistence really works out. Sounds good. Okay. Speedy bandwidth is provided by the fine folks at Rails Machine. Other expenses are paid for by Peep Code Screencast, where I've got a sale going on through the end of November. 20 bucks off the unlimited plan or one extra credit if you buy the five pack. And if you're craving more Ruby audio content, check out the Rails Envy podcast done by my friends over at RailsEnvy.com, a weekly podcast every Wednesday covering the latest news in the Ruby and Rails world. <laughs>